You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But, before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from the Corpus Delicti Podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime's your thing, it's ours too. Just a little dash of lightheartedness and a hint of Southern charm. Serial killers, controversial cases, historical hallmarks, we've got it all. So just join us every Tuesday on iTunes, Podbean, or many other podcast apps as we dive into compelling cases and crack them open for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. My name is Arielle, and I host Murder Under the Midnight Sun. I cover a wide variety of cases from the great state of Alaska and the rest of the United States, and I can guarantee you that you probably haven't heard of 95% of the cases I'll be discussing. So, if you want some new true crime content in your ears, you can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else fine podcasts are sold. Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number seven of the Forgotten News Podcast. My name is Jim, and thank you for listening. I'm going to start this episode by explaining something that has been confusing to a few listeners. First, as I just said, this is episode number seven. By that, I mean this is our seventh full-length episode. We've also had three previous mini-episodes. But since those mini-episodes merely presented either bonus material or were simply a spin-off story from the prior episode, we didn't number them or include them in our numbering system. I hope that is all the clarification that anyone needs about that. The next thing I will now mention, for anyone who might be interested, is that we currently have reached nearly 3,000 downloads for this podcast. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for helping our show to grow by leaps and bounds. Yes, I know, I know, it's not exactly millions, but 
from everything I've been told by people who are knowledgeable about this stuff, we are doing much better than most new independent podcasts. And with that having been said, we will now move on to our featured story. So, here we go. You. You out there. Do you know what horror is? Smug. Confident. Secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demons? The surge through the corridors of the crazed mind? Do you know that in the world of the insane you will find a kind of truth more terrifying than fiction? A truth that will shock you. Come with me into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. Let me take you into the mind of a woman who is mad. You may not recognize some things in this world, and the faces will look strange to you. For this is a place where there is no love, no hope. In the pulsing, throbbing world of the insane mind, where only nightmares are real, nightmares of the daughter of horror. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, Annabelle. You're right. I apologize to anyone who was frightened by that. I'll tell our listeners what this episode is really going to be. In this episode, we will tell a true story from 1888. It's the story of a woman who claimed to be a psychic with amazing powers, but she actually was a crook who tricked a nice old man into giving her nearly all his life savings. Now, I could tell you what happens next, but instead, just keep listening, and you'll soon find out. (laughs) Yes, that's the real story, in a nutshell. And, since usually at this point, I give a listener warning about anything in the story that might be upsetting to anybody, I'll just say there is nothing in this story that might disturb anybody with the possible exception of professional con artists. Oh well. So, with that having been said, on with the show. Our story begins in New York City in early 1888 with a 72-year-old man named Luther Marsh, 
a retired judge and commissioner of parks. Unfortunately, at this point in his life, Luther Marsh was also very sad and lonely because of the death of his wife of 40 years, about six months earlier. He had also been very emotionally affected by the recent passing away of an actress named Adelaide Nelson, who had been extremely famous at the time and with whom he had been very smitten, although it does not appear that they had ever met during her lifetime. Somehow, one way or another, during the winter of 1888, Mr. Marsh happened to meet a 40-year-old woman who called herself Madame Editha Dees Debar, who managed to convince him that she could communicate with the dead, and that he could talk to his late wife through her. So, that was how it began. She led him to believe that she was receiving messages from his wife, and that he was speaking to her in return. And this continued for about three weeks, but then messages from his dead wife gradually stopped coming and were seemingly replaced by messages from Adelaide Nelson and other famous individuals from the past. But, as if this wasn't enough, Dees Debar next showed Mr. Marsh that she had the power to make paintings and portraits suddenly appear that had allegedly been painted by Rembrandt or other great artists from beyond the grave. According to an article in the New York Sun on March 29, 1888, the process was described as follows. Quote, Marsh buys mounted canvases and he holds them up above his head while Madame Debar is present and the paintings appear on them, all wet and sticky and smelling of paint. Unquote. This relationship with Dees Debar gave Marsh a new lease on life. He woke up happy every morning, and soon he invited her and her husband and two children to come and live with him, which they did. His home became filled with laughter and friendship. Marsh now believed he knew the answer to all the secrets of life and death, and he was at peace. Not long afterward, he announced that he would take to the stage on April 1st to give a lecture in Chickering Hall, and that he would exhibit some of the spirit pictures to the public. Marsh was a rather well-known person at the time, so the hall was packed, and he explained his beliefs to the crowd, which was initially described as patient and attentive, but he soon began to suspect some skepticism within the audience. But that did not seem to bother him. Instead, he doubled down and told the crowd, If I am on the side of God, we are in the majority. So, for a while, it looked as if his presentation could be a success. But, according to the New York Tribune of April 2nd, 1888, once the lights were turned down and the stereopticon reproductions of the spirit pictures were cast slowly one after another on the screen 
The audience looked and wondered and easily noticed the awful and amateurish brushwork. And throughout the crowd, spontaneous chuckles began to be heard. The chuckles turned into laughter, which then became almost a roar. Somehow this did not seem to rattle Luther Marsh. His only reaction was to smile and say, I like a hearty laugh. Some in the crowd began to yell for Madame Deese de Bar to come on stage and speak. After all, Mr. Marsh had called her the source and inspiration for his newfound knowledge. But he did not respond. He simply ignored the yells, the giggles, and the catcalls, and calmly finished his speech. And when he finally did introduce Madame Editha Deese de Bar, he said, If she is a fraud, she is a big one. This remark was evidently intended as a humorous reference to her 250-pound girth. Next, according to the New York Tribune of April 2, 1888, Dees de Bar, when she ultimately appeared on stage, quote, glanced around with an eye of withering scorn. But nobody withered. They even laughed, unquote. However, the laughter only increased the anger of Madame, who, according to the same article, quote, ramped and raged like a tragedy queen, unquote. This was a perfectly predictable result. She had once told a group of reporters, I can be a very charming woman, or I can be a Lady Macbeth. But she soon got over the mocking because, not long after, Marsh gave Dees de Bar a gift, yes, a gift of his four-story brownstone mansion on Madison Avenue, worth over $60,000, the equivalent of $1.4 million today, on the condition that the house would become, quote-unquote, a temple of truth. She apparently decided to carry out this promise by almost immediately getting a mortgage on the place, which enabled her to pocket $11,000 in cash, the equivalent of 274000 today. Well, after that, to make a long story short, a few old friends of Mr. Marsh somehow learned about this unusual transaction and its aftermath, and they decided that he needed to be protected from himself and also from the greedy clutches of Editha Dees de Bar and her crew. They quickly decided that a criminal prosecution of the whole gang would be the best and most effective solution. They also decided that it needed to be done as soon as possible, so they decided to make use of the fact that the state of New York allowed any private citizen to file criminal charges in court against an alleged wrongdoer. This was called a private prosecution, and in the 19th century, they were very common. In this particular case, the charge was conspiracy to defraud 
Mr. Marsh of his property. And if the judge, after hearing the allegations, decided that there was sufficient evidence, then the case would be turned over to the grand jury for a possible felony trial that could result in imprisonment. However, the immediate goal of the charges, according to the friends of Luther Marsh, was to hopefully open his eyes so that he would finally see that he was being duped by Madame Dees de Bar. Anyway, a group of lawyers representing these friends of Mr. Marsh contacted the law firm of Howe and Hummel and asked them if they would be willing to bring this private prosecution for fraud. I previously discussed this firm in some detail on the Ella Nelson episode of this podcast. It was a law firm that was famous or infamous in New York City in the 19th century. They primarily represented people who were accused of committing crimes. They were very successful. At one point in the 1890s, they represented over 90% of all persons charged with felonies in New York. One of the reasons that William Howe and Abraham Hummel were so successful as attorneys is that they were not only highly skilled, but they were willing to play dirty. This was a firm that had a reputation as being unethical. They were known for doing whatever it would take to win a case. In a nutshell, they played hardball. These were men who had successfully convinced juries to vote not guilty in cases where the defendant had been caught holding a smoking gun or a bloody knife over the body of a dead victim. And that was exactly the kind of lawyer that the friends of Luther Marsh wanted so that Editha Dees de Bar could be crushed like a bug. And even though Howan Hummel usually represented individuals who were accused of crime, they happily agreed to handle this case. They had long known Luther Marsh when he had been a judge. He had been kind and fair, and they liked him. They did not want him swindled. So, on April 11, 1888, the case began on the basis of two sworn affidavits that had been filed and which promptly led to the arrest of Madame Dees de Bar, her husband and two helpers, Benjamin Lawrence and his son Frank, who had all been enjoying Mr. Marsh's generous hospitality. This is the point where the story of Editha Dees de Bar begins to unravel. And also, by this point, you may have been wondering who exactly was Editha Dees de Bar, alias Princess Editha, alias Madame Missant, alias the Countess of Langfeld. Well, who knows? Dees de Bar claimed to be the secret daughter of the so-called Mad King Ludwig of Bavaria and Lola Montez, who had been a very scandalous actress during the middle years of the 19th century. However, if you would prefer to believe Madame Dees de Bar's brother, 
this was not true, and that her actual real name was Anne Odelia Solomon, and that she was born in Kentucky in 1849. At the age of 20, she left home and began an adult life in which she traveled from town to town and state to state, finding ways to acquire money from gullible men and women, and gradually developing a reputation for heavy drinking and leaving a trail of unpaid bills. She lived for several months in Philadelphia, where she met Joseph Deese DeBar, who claimed to be a retired general, which he was not. They would be together for nine years. And now that I've given you that little bit of background, let's return to 1888. Editha Deese DeBar, just like nearly every other successful con artist, knew that neither the court nor the prosecution would believe her claims of being able to chat with angels, dead wives, or dead actresses, or anyone else in the spirit world. So, it was not long after Dees DeBar had sat in jail for a few days that she announced that her spirit guides had instructed her to return Mr. Marsh's home back to him as a gift for all of his kindness to her. And she signed the paperwork to make that happen. I did not ask Mr. Marsh for a cent, so I was very much astonished when he gave me his house. However, unfortunately for Madame, her decision to return Mr. Marsh's house back to him did not result in the charges being dropped. In addition, even though on March 29, 1888, Luther Marsh had told a reporter for the New York Times that, quote-unquote, the theory of fraud or collusion is out of the question, the court would not allow him to pay her bail. And, probably needless to say, no one else had offered to either. On the afternoon of April 18th, the case began. The courtroom was filled to capacity. William Howe and Abraham Hummel both showed up early. Howe wore a big diamond horseshoe scarf pin for luck. Although I doubt he really felt he needed any luck to win this case. But when Editha Deese DeBar suddenly drifted into the room wearing a large bonnet topped with olive green ostrich feathers, all eyes turned towards her. Once the proceedings began, the task of Howe and Hummel was to convince the court that there was enough hard evidence to turn the case over to the grand jury for felony prosecution by the district attorney. But this was not their only goal. Their other intention was to show Luther Marsh that he had been swindled. They knew they needed to be careful in how they went about doing that because they did not want Luther Marsh to look or feel like a fool, but just as an ordinary man who had been taken advantage of by some very smart crooks. 
The lawyer for Deese DeBar, a man named John Townsend, declared that he would defend her against the charges on the basis that her claims were true, that she really did have the ability to communicate with the spirit world, and that the paintings were indeed created by spirits from beyond the grave. There would be no confession of trickery or sleight of hand. So, the issue would now be whether they could convince the court that the claims by Madame Deese de Bar were indeed true. On the first day, the star witness was George Solomon, the brother of Deese de Bar, who had signed one of the affidavits that was the basis for the prosecution. He got right to the point. She was not the daughter of an illicit romance between a king and his mistress, but she was his sister, a Kentucky farm girl, and an annoyance to her family for most of her life. The proof of this was a pile of letters which he handed to William Howe, who then read them aloud in the courtroom. Her brother then summed up the angry frustration which he felt. She has destroyed the peace of mind of almost everybody who has ever said good morning to her. The next notable witness was Joseph Randolph, a theatrical manager who spoke to Deese DeBar about possibly going on a speaking tour. She was not only thrilled with the idea, but tried to convince him to join her in working to scam Luther Marsh, and that together they might be able to split up to $150,000 from the con. He asked her if she wasn't afraid that Marsh would get upset by ridicule in the newspapers and toss her out. She responded by saying, I told Marsh that I had a communication from the angel Gabriel that if he read the newspapers, his punishment would be that his soul would be in hell for 30,000 years. <laughs> but despite the cajoling of Deese DeBar, he was unwilling to risk his future by doing anything to help her fleece Mr. Marsh. He went on to say that she had attempted to convince him by making a sexual proposition. And when Bill Howe asked exactly what he meant by that, Randolph whispered the specifics to the judge, who blushed and said that they were, quote-unquote, unfit to be heard in a public courtroom. The hearing continued over the next few days, with Howe and Hummel announcing that they intended to defeat, quote-unquote, trickery concealed with trickery confessed by bringing some of the most famous magicians in New York into the courtroom to perform the identical so-called miracles that Deese DeBar had claimed had occurred through her power to contact and communicate with the spirit world. And that is exactly what Howe and Hummel did. One magician, for example, was able to easily produce written messages from spirits, angels, and random dead people. This performance was intended not only to prove fraud by Deese DeBar, but also to show Marsh how he had been tricked. Unfortunately, Marsh was not in the courtroom that day. But... He was in court the next day, 
but this time it was because William Howe had called him to the stand to testify as a witness. Now, at this point, I will mention that Bill Howe could be a very intimidating figure in any courtroom, and not only because he was over six feet tall and weighed more than 300 pounds. In addition, due to the fact that he had lived most of his youth in England, he spoke with a Cockney accent, which often rattled people when he questioned them on the witness stand. Finally, he tended to speak in a big, booming voice. But, in this case, William Howe began by questioning Luther Marsh in a soft, quiet voice. He asked him if he had a current occupation. Marsh responded by describing himself as, quote-unquote, a reformed lawyer. After a few additional questions that were equally gentle, Bill Howe began to probe into the topic of the communications from the spirit world. He asked Mr. Marsh if he had any proof to back up his belief that he had been in contact with various saints or other persons from the great beyond. Marsh then looked at William Howe, flashed a smile, and handed him three notebooks, which he said contained messages from St. Peter, St. Paul, and St. Anthony. William Howe asked him what was the method by which he received these writings from the saints. Marsh said that they came through the intercessory powers of Madame de Debar. She would suddenly feel a communication about to come. Then she would place a blank notebook inside of a book or magazine. Then he would take one end and Madame would take the other and they would hear a noise like a pen writing on the pad. When the noise came to a stop, they would take out the notebook and read whatever message had been written. Marsh then added that the one from St. Peter was unique because it had took over 15 minutes to read, but it had only taken about two minutes to materialize. After hearing this description, Bill Howe paused for a moment, then commented, Oh my, St. Peter was a lively scribbler. Then, since Marsh could see that William Howe wasn't convinced, he then decided to describe how he had obtained over 75 paintings that had come into his house from the spirit world through the miraculous powers of Madame Dice de Bar. She suddenly hears spirit voices in the air, and she repeats the words which I take down on a piece of paper. Whenever the spirits promise a painting, then a painting comes. Why, in December, she told me that the spirit of the late great actress Adelaide Nelson had come to inform her that Rembrandt was painting my portrait. Adelaide told her that Rembrandt had painted Raphael's picture, and the latter returned the compliment by painting Rembrandt's. This so pleased Rembrandt that nothing would satisfy him but to paint mine. Of course, I acquiesced, and that's how my portrait came to be painted. Adelaide said that I could expect it to arrive on Christmas. I was disappointed that morning because it had not appeared. So I asked Aditha to speak to Adelaide, and she said that she would, 
and that I shouldn't worry about it, but I should just go to church like I had planned. So I went to church, and when I got back and opened the door, Editha gave me the good news that the picture had arrived. I rushed upstairs, and there it was. Marsh then sat back and gave Bill Howe a look of satisfaction, as if his explanation had proved everything, and that the judge should just send everyone home. Well, not long after this conversation, Marsh was excused from the witness stand, but with a soft admonition that he would likely be called back. Shortly afterward, one of the magicians was returned for additional demonstrative testimony. His name was Carl Herz, and in the 1880s he had become famous as the King of Cards. However, he knew how to do a lot more than fancy tricks with playing cards. He soon showed the entire courtroom that he could easily duplicate the supposedly miraculous powers of Aditha Dees de Bar, and this time Luther Marsh was sitting in the audience, watching every moment. The magician was even able to make written messages appear from St. Peter, Socrates, and several other notable residents of the spirit world, with whom Mr. Marsh believed he had been communicating. Unfortunately, even after seeing all this, Marsh was not yet convinced that Madame de Debar had tricked him. He had been called back to the witness stand and stated his opinion that quote-unquote the holy truth of spiritualism had not been disproved. As evidence, he discussed the spirit pictures. And, to prove his point, he had brought some to court and presented them as part of his testimony. One of the paintings was a portrait of Lola Montez. He said it had spontaneously arrived in February. He added that when Madame de Debar's husband walked into the room and saw it for the first time, he was so awestruck that he shouted, That is my mother-in-law! At this point, Marsh was again excused from the witness stand. William Howe then brought in his next witness, a clerk from an art supply store located near the Marsh mansion. She testified that Aditha Dees de Bar and her husband were frequent purchasers of paint, canvas, and picture frames. One time, they returned a canvas because it was marked with the store's name. They had told the clerk that they could only use canvases that were entirely unmarked. The next witness that was brought to court in regard to the spirit paintings was a photographer who knew how to make an image suddenly appear on a canvas, seemingly from out of the blue. And he made it happen in the court. With a sweep of his hand, a large portrait of Adelaide Nelson instantly materialized on a blank canvas, right in front of the shocked eyes of Luther Marsh, and as the rest of the audience burst into laughter. After his testimony, explaining the trick of how to create a spirit picture, the prosecution rested. The defense now had its turn, and the lawyer for the defendants would be making 
a very simple argument. Madame Dice de Bar and her husband had never asked for anything from Luther Marsh. He had invited them to live with him, and he had voluntarily deeded his home to her. If Marsh did not feel that he was a victim of any wrongdoing, then no crime had occurred. And they also attempted to claim that Madame had real powers that had been given to her by the spirit world. The defense attempted to prove this through the testimony of witnesses who ultimately were of no help to them at all. One witness was the wife of the editor of Scientific American magazine. But, unlike her husband, she had beliefs that had no scientific basis whatsoever. She, instead, was a blind believer in the claims of Madame Dees de Bar. While testifying, she suddenly decided to speak at length about her own personal philosophy of life while waving a picture of an ancient Egyptian astronomer. Once it became obvious that her testimony had become utterly irrelevant and unhelpful, she was excused from the witness stand, but refused to leave, and a policeman needed to be called to forcibly remove her from the courtroom. By the time the last witness was called for the defense, Bill Howe was truly enjoying himself. He had no doubt that this was a case that he was going to win. So, when a man named Ezekiel Leonard was on the stand, testifying that he had personally seen the creation of a painting through the intervention of spirits, his testimony became a bit confused when, during questioning, William Howe repeatedly referred to him as Mr. Gosling. Finally, he got fed up and blurted out that his last name was Leonard, not Gosling. Big Bill Howe then pretended to be embarrassed that he had made a mistake. He looked around the courtroom and stated to no one in particular, I ought to have known that so big a goose could not have been a gosling. However, when it became plain as day that none of the witnesses had helped their case in any way at all, then Madame Dice de Bar and General Dice de Bar both realized that they were going to have to testify because no one else was going to be able to save them. On the witness stand, Madame Dice de Bar began by telling her alleged background. I was born in 1849. I am the daughter of the late great actress Lola Montez and the late King Ludwig of Bavaria, which is a country where I was born. Next, when she was shown a family Bible, indicating her name to be Anne Odelia Solomon, she attempted to explain it away. She claimed that the writing in the Bible that showed she had been born in Kentucky, not Bavaria, was all a fake to hide the true facts. I was sent to America when I was six years of age. The royal family decided that I was too much of a scandal to keep around because my parents were not married. Someone in the royal family knew a family named Salomon in Kentucky. They worked me as if I were their slave, and later they even tried to kill me. After that, I ran away and eventually found my way to a convent where I told them the story and they took me in. I disowned the Salomon family as soon as I was old enough to do so. 
The man from that family who says he is my brother is a miserable character, a liar and a black sheep. Later in her testimony, Madame Deese de Bar attempted to disprove the accusation of fraud by claiming that her spirit power was real and explaining where it had come from. My spirit power came to me while I was in the convent. I suddenly was able to communicate with angels, saints, and souls of the dead with almost no effort. I learned that some spirits are able to create paintings and transmit them to us here on earth if they desire. The paintings that I gave Mr. Marsh were genuinely what I told him they were, the work of spirit hands. General Joseph Deese de Bar also testified. He did himself no favors when he had to admit that Madame was not his legal wife, and when he had to admit that he had a real wife and family in Philadelphia, and when he had to admit that he was not really a general, and when he had to admit an extremely damaging fact, that he had a long background as an artist. He had even designed the official seal of the state of West Virginia. And then, after hearing and reviewing all of this testimony and evidence, the judge reached a fairly obvious conclusion. Editha Deese de Bar and Joseph Deese de Bar were going to be turned over to the grand jury. As for their cronies, Benjamin Lawrence and his son Frank, all they were found guilty of was helping themselves to free meals from the dinner table of Luther Marsh. The judge decided that was not sufficient grounds for a felony charge, and so they were set free. And according to the New York Tribune of May 1, 1888, they then, quote-unquote, joyfully departed. At this point, Luther Marsh finally realized that the Deese de Bars were simply con artists and that he had been tricked. He was shocked to learn that they were not really married. He announced to the newspapers that neither they, nor their children, nor their pals would ever be allowed at his home again. And then, not long after that, the grand jury voted indictments against Editha and Joseph Deese de Bar. They went on trial in early June, and approximately three weeks later, they were both convicted of conspiracy with intent to defraud. According to the New York Times of June 17, 1888, quote, when the verdict was announced, Madame's lower jaw dropped a little, and for a moment she appeared ghastly." Unquote. She and Joseph were then taken away by the police, and thereupon spent the next six months in jail for their crimes. Unfortunately, this was a victory mixed with sadness. Although the courtroom skills of William Howe skillfully kept Luther Marsh from being robbed of his dignity, it is impossible to hear this entire story without feeling a little sad for him. And guess what? 
On the day that she was released from prison, he was at the gate to see her, but he was not there to greet her, but only to tell her to her face to stay away. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our story. So, all I can say is... We would like to give our deepest and sincerest thanks to the kind and wonderful podcasters who contributed their voice talents to this episode. Specifically, Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club podcast and the We're All Just Pretending podcast. Pete from the Pulp Paris podcast, the Jake Dimes podcast, the Range Detective podcast, and the Save the Last Word for Me podcast. Frank from the English Martial Arts podcast. Jeremy from podcasts we listen to, which is both a podcast and a Facebook group. And last but not least, Annabelle <laughs> from this podcast and also Annabelle Audios at Hotmail.com. We've included their full names, voice credits, and links to their podcasts, etc., in the show notes. If you'd like to know the specific role that was spoken and performed by each person whom I just mentioned, then just go to our show notes and you can find that information and almost anything else you'd like to know about this episode. Now, let me again say thanks to everyone who contributed their voice to this episode. By the way, I mentioned the Facebook group called Podcasts We Listen To. If you are a listener to this show and you don't already belong to podcasts we listen to, then you really should. Just type that phrase into the search bar on Facebook and you'll get right to it. Okay, at this point, we would also like to thank an extra wonderful group of listeners. Specifically, those of you who are kind and thoughtful enough to write and post a review of our podcast on iTunes also known as Apple Podcasts. Now, on this episode, I had originally planned to give shout-outs to people who had written iTunes reviews for this podcast, but Annabelle convinced me that I should put that off until the next episode, because this one was already long enough. Definitely. (laughs) Even so, we would truly appreciate it If you, our listeners, would take a moment to go to iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating and review for this podcast. Thanks in advance for doing that. And I promise that we will give shout-outs on our next episodes to anyone who gives us a review and who has not already been mentioned on this show. We will also give a shout-out to anyone who makes a contribution to the show We've even made it easy for you. There's a link at the bottom of the show notes page where you can just click and give a contribution of any amount, large or small, through PayPal. Even a dollar would help to offset our time and expenses. By the way, speaking of shout-outs, I will, as usual, give a shout-out to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music used on this episode. I have included specific credits for him and his music in the show notes. 
And as always, we would love to hear your comments, feedback, opinions, ideas, thoughts, and anything else you might like to say in regard to this episode or any past episode or about the show in general. So with that in mind, our email address is ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to type that as all one word. There are no hyphens or dashes. We also have a Facebook page. It's another place where you can make comments, be our guest, and just do it. If you don't already belong, just go to the search bar on Facebook and type in three words, Forgotten News Podcast, and it will take you right there. In addition, you can also contact and follow us on Twitter and give us your thoughts about almost anything. But be sure to take note, our Twitter handle is at newsforgotten and not forgotten news. So, long story short, please feel free to use any of these methods to interact with us. We really sincerely want to hear from you. Finally, I encourage you to take a look at the show notes for this episode or any other episode that might be of interest to you. And as far as I know, every platform that carries our podcast also includes our show notes in one way or another. If you have any trouble finding our show notes, simply send me an email and I'll give you a direct link. And now, with all that having been said, goodbye everyone. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. It's natural to believe in the supernatural. It never feels natural to only accept natural things.